Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. A reading from Isaiah 6, 1 through 13. The year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. You guys ready to continue Isaiah? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know, as we were singing and worshiping together today, uh, that song, uh, Power in the Name of Jesus, uh, it's one of my favorite songs. Um, those lines that there's power in the name and just a mention makes away uh, the hope and the healing. Uh, but if I'm honest with you, most days that we sing that song, I love it because uh, it, it reminds me of what I don't often experience or think is true. 
Um, I don't know if you ever have this experience, but sometimes when we worship, uh, some of the songs we sing that are, are based in promises of Scripture, words that come from Scripture itself. So it's not just like people are making these things up. Uh, I, I sing them and I think, man, I want that to be true. Like, I want to experience that. But, but most days I would say my faith is more skeptic than mystic. I don't know if you resonate with that at all. Um, I, I tend to lean more towards the intellectual side of faith in many ways. I, I love studying scripture, particularly diving into the word of God, seeing the grammar and the way the words work together and the themes and threads. And, and for, for me, most of that is an intellectual experience. It, it's study and it's diving into to context and to, to grammar and to hyperlinks in scripture. But as much as I believe our faith is, is a reasonable faith, and by that I mean that there are intellectual reasons that we can believe and trust that our faith is true. The truth is that that's not how I came to faith. And my guess is, I'm not trying to project my story onto you, but it, it's not the arguments of faith that brought you into the faith. Somewhere along the way, my guess is that you had an encounter with the living God where he became real to you, where, where you experienced his power and his presence, where, where suddenly you couldn't argue with all of the arguments. And maybe there were arguments that played a role in that, but, but my guess is that for many of us in this room, if we are believers and followers of Jesus, it's because Jesus became real to us in some tangible way. For me, that happened when I was 13 years old, and I was at a youth camp in La Tech University, Ruston, Louisiana, like the most random place ever. I, I was growing up in Dallas, and for some reason, our church decided to do a youth camp um, several hours away in Ruston, Louisiana. It was hot. It was humid. And to be honest with you, I was just going there uh, because I thought I was going to get a flirt with girls in my youth group and play basketball during free time. And that was my whole purpose in going. And, uh, and I didn't even feel guilty about the fact that, that someone from our tiny little Bible church had paid for me to go. Uh, because you see, the, about a year earlier, my dad had been laid off right after 9-11. And so we didn't have the money uh, to send me to camp. And I was kind of this troublemaker in our youth group. And, and for some reason, someone from our church just decided to pay my way in full. They spent $375 so that I could go to camp um, and be there with our youth group. And I just thought I was going, like I said, to play basketball and flirt with the girls uh, that I thought were cute. But God had different plans. And somewhere along the way that week, I think it was the second night of this worship experience, to be honest, as I entered this space, I was pretty skeptical. I had never been to any kind of youth camp or rally or anything like that before. And, and there were just hundreds and hundreds of kids that were worshiping in this auditorium, in this basketball gymnasium. And I was like pretty resistant. And most of the time, I wasn't even singing or engaging. And then the speaker would get up to speak. Um, and I had no idea who he was, but he was some guy named Francis Chan. Um, if you're familiar with that, this was like way back before he was Francis Chan. And the worship leader that year was a, a young worship pastor named Chris Tomlin, um, who was just doing his thing and starting out. And so I had no idea what any of this was. And I was pretty skeptical about the messages and the worship, and I just was, was hesitant to listen. And then there was this one night, and I don't even remember the, the name of the song. I don't even think I've heard the song since, but there was this refrain in the song that said, I'm madly in love with you. 
And that refrain wasn't even that God was in love with me. It was saying that I was in love with God. And as I listened to the words and heard people singing, I just, there was something that happened to me where I thought, I, I don't. Like, I don't love God. I love myself. And I'm not madly in love with God. I'm madly in love with my life. And so that started to stir something and change something in me. And so the next day, I pulled one of my youth leaders aside, a guy by the name of Bill Murphy, who is without a doubt probably the least cool youth leader you could ever have. <laughs> and I'm, if, Bill, if you're listening by chance, I love you. And, uh, but yeah, not a cool person. He was just some guy who decided to take a week off of camp and show up. And all he did was love Jesus and sit with me in the cafeteria of La Tech University and explain who Jesus was and what he was doing in my life. And I encountered God. And, and it wasn't some like emotional thing. It wasn't some, it was just this realization that God is real and that he is encountering me in this space. And I want to live for him. I want to be in love with him. And it's easy now for me, 20 years later, to look back on that moment and think, man, the whole youth camp hype thing, like the manipulation, it's Chris Tomlin, it's Francis Chan, like they know how to drive the machine. They know how to make youths respond and give their lives to Jesus. And it's easy for me to be skeptical of that time. And then if you've ever had an experience at a rally or camp or something, you know what I'm talking about. This like, is that real? But what I can't argue with is that 20 years later, something happened that week that has never let me go. It's never let me go. It lit a fire within me. Something changed within me where I encountered the presence of God, and I was never the same again. And it lit some sort of fire that shifted things within me, and I no longer wanted to live just for myself, but I wanted to live for God. And some weeks, some days, that, that fire feels like it's just like barely still burning. There are seasons where it feels like it's more of an ember than like a blazing furnace. But despite the ups and downs of my journey of faith, there, there's something that happened. I encountered the presence of the living God, and I was never the same again. And my guess is that somewhere along the way, if you were a follower of Jesus, something like that took place in your life where you encountered the presence of Jesus. And it wasn't the intellectual arguments. It wasn't the reasonableness of our faith. It wasn't the, the things that we can adhere to or believe. It was simply the fact that God came alive to you in a way he hadn't been before. And you were changed. And you were made different because you experienced his presence. I think one of the challenges for us in our particular context is, is that's often the starting place of faith. But then faith continues and we get to the place where where we can fill the spaces of our life, not just with a desire for God or to be more in love with God or to live for God, but, but suddenly other things begin to creep into our lives. Suddenly a career becomes important to us. Suddenly family and kids and people that pursuing relationships with other people. Or, or let's be honest, sometimes just Netflix and social media creeps into the spaces that, that before had been dedicated to living our lives for God. I think one of the challenges in our context in particular in, in suburban America is that it can be really easy to inoculate ourselves to the presence of God, 
to, to just get to a place where we are so busy living our life and doing our thing and walking through our day-to-day experiences that, that we forget to encounter, that, that we forget to pursue, that, that we don't think God wants to encounter us anymore. And so we can come to church and we see songs like we did today, and if you're like me, and there's just this little hesitation, like, God, do you really still show up? Is it still just the mention of your name? Because we see people with addictions, and we see prodigal children who walk away from the faith. We see the struggles within our own faith, and we we question and we wonder, God, do you still want to show up in my life and do something with me? And what we're looking at today is this story of Isaiah's miraculous encounter with the living God. He he is ushered into the presence of God and he encounters God in a way he never thought possible. And there's this theme that happens throughout scripture. When when, when people encounter the living God, there's often three things that happen. The the, the first encounter, it's terrifying. There's something that, that when they experience God's presence, suddenly they're overwhelmed with the realization that something within them has to shift. That their perspective about how the world works and what is going on in the world and what God's place in the world and and their place within God's world has to change and their perspective has to shift. And the second thing they often realize is that, wow, something within me needs to be transformed. That, That I need to change. It's not just perspective about reality that needs to change, but something within me needs to change and I cannot be the same after this moment. And then the third thing that often happens in Scripture when people encounter God is that they're called to something more, that that God calls them into some sort of challenge to follow him and to live for him. And we see each of those three things happen in the story of Isaiah this morning. And and so as we dive in, I I just want to be abundantly clear. I am preaching today that, that we might encounter the presence of the living God. That, that he might wake up in us the places that have fallen asleep to who he is and what he's doing in the world. That, that the spaces in our lives where we've maybe remained hidden from God or we've tried to, to keep to the side and, and the places that we think like God doesn't want this part of my life, that he might expose those things. And that we might come to him and, and express a, a full heart of devotion to him. I am praying for us this morning that God might wake us up to the reality that he is at work in the world and that he is calling this community and each of us to participate in what he is doing in the world. So that's where we're going today. And I think the the hesitancy for for coming from a a skeptic's heart, coming from someone who can often be cynical of those spaces, is is cynicism and skepticism is is an easy way to boundary ourselves and protect ourselves from the things that God is doing. Because if we can ask questions, if if we can challenge the things that we see and we're experiencing, if we can rationalize away what's happening, then we don't actually have to change. We don't actually have to encounter. We don't actually have to shift our perspective. And so what I'm praying for us today is that we would have open eyes to see what God is doing in our world, that our ears would be open to his word, and that if any of us have calloused or skeptic hearts, that they would be softened to the things that God might want to do in our community today. 
So before we dive in, let me say that prayer for us. Heavenly Father, God, as we come into your presence today, as we come into this space, we know that you are here. We know that you are present with this community. God, I simply ask that you would awaken us to the things that you are at work doing in the world. God, I simply ask that if there are any skeptics in the room, if there are any of us in the room who, who have a calloused heart to the things that you're doing, God, if there are places in our life where we feel comfortable and content and complacent in our faith, God, if there are spaces in our life where we simply don't even think we need you, God, I simply ask that today you might awaken us with an encounter with you. That, God, you would make yourself available to us. That you would make yourself real to us. God, it may not be visions of creatures with six wings or entering into the, the physical presence of your holiness, but I pray that in each of our hearts and our souls and our minds, we would encounter you, that we would recognize you are the living God, that you would shift the things within us that need to shift, that you would bring transformation to the places within us that need transformation, and that, God, you would open our eyes to ultimate reality of who you are, and that we would live for you more fully because you are the real and living God. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. All right, so as we dive in today, we're going to start chapter 6, verse 1. And right off the bat, there's some important context that Isaiah is giving us about this passage. Um, in, in this opening phrase where he says, in the year King Uzziah died. Do we have that? In the year King Uzziah died, there is a lot that Isaiah is packing into that simple phrase to start this passage. You, you see, King Uzziah is widely considered the greatest ruler of Judea and Israel since the time of King David and King Solomon. He, he's a ruler who came to power when he was 16 years old, and he reigned for over 50 years. And we're told in both Kings and Chronicles that Uzziah was a king who, who desired to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And if you know anything about the history of the kings of Israel and Judah, it's that not very many of them desired to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, many of them chose to do what was right in their own eyes, but not Uzziah. When he comes to the throne, when he comes into power, his sole focus is on pursuing the presence of God and bringing God's presence to his people. 
And the 50 years he reigns brings incredible security and flourishing to the kingdom. They have economic flourishing where where trade and, and resources are flowing freely and people are experiencing an abundance of wealth and prosperity. He brings security with military victories and conquering his enemies and bringing peace to the kingdom. And so the the kingdom of Judah enters into this space of 50 years of security and stability and prosperity. Everything is good. But somewhere along the way in Uzziah's reign, he forgot that it had been the Lord leading him in all these spaces. And he began to, to get this heart that thought, you know what? I'm actually the one who's accomplished all this. I'm a pretty good king. I'm the one who's conquered my enemies. I'm the one who's brought stability to the empire. And what we're told is that his pride led him to try and seize more power. But not over other kingdoms or not over other peoples, but actually to enter the very temple and presence of God. And to try to take the priestly authority from the priest, to, to offer sacrifices and to, to essentially to, to bring together, to merge together the, the stately power with the power of the temple. And he did something that the kings were never supposed to do. And he entered into the most holy presence of God within the temple to make offerings that only priests were supposed to make. And so the high priest at the time and 80 other priests come and they confront him in the temple and say, what are you doing? This is a holy space. You are not supposed to just waltz into the presence of God and seize this place and this space for yourself. You are not allowed to come into the holy of holies as if you can just do whatever you want in God's presence. And Uzziah rebels against their statement. And so in the holy of holies, he is struck with leprosy. And we're told that leprosy from the top of his head to the bottom of his toes covers his entire body. And suddenly this king who who started out desiring to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord has to live the remainder of his life and his rule and reign in isolation. Not just from others because they were scared of lepers, but because lepers themselves were not allowed into the temple. And so he lives his life in isolation, not just from others, but from the very presence of God that he had sought for himself. And so when Isaiah says that that in the year King Uzziah died, I had this vision, he is packing a lot of history into this moment. There's a lot of cultural context that's going on in this space. Because you see, the the nation is questioning and wondering, what is going to happen after Uzziah? Here's this king, the, the greatest king we've had since David and Solomon, who's brought stability and security and prosperity to our kingdom. What's going to happen now that he's gone? It's an intense time of uncertainty and chaos. And and the people are beginning to see the rising empires around them like Assyria and Babylon and are wondering, what will happen to us? Have you ever been in a space where your circumstances, your problems, your challenges in life feel overwhelming? That the uncertainty of the future feels like, I just don't quite know what's going to happen next. I don't quite know if God is with me in this and if he's going to show up. I'm not quite sure how things are going to work out. That is the moment that the people of Israel find themselves in. 
Isaiah says, everyone listen up. Because in this moment of uncertainty and chaos and unknown and this political turmoil and unrest, which we can't relate to at all, right? He says, in this moment when our king has died, I saw the Lord. And what did he see when he saw the Lord? I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. Do you see the contrast that Isaiah is playing with already? Here's King Uzziah who tried to to usher himself into the presence of God, who tried to, to take for himself the presence of God and was struck with leprosy and had to live his life in isolation. Suddenly Isaiah is taken into that very space in the midst of uncertainty and chaos. And what does he see? He sees God high and exalted and seated on a throne. The king is dead, but the sovereign king still reigns. In the midst of the uncertainty, in the midst of the chaos, God is on his throne. He sees the Lord seated as a king. In fact, he can't even make out the entirety of his throne. All he sees is the train of God's robe filling the entire temple, which was probably the the largest structure that Isaiah had ever seen. He's saying God's glory, God's holiness, God is so grand, so highly exalted that that the temple isn't anything but merely a footstool to him. He is sovereign and he is in charge. God is in the throne. Whatever your circumstances, whatever your fears, whatever chaos or uncertainty is around you, God is sovereign and ruling and in charge. Not only that, but Isaiah sees that these incredible winged creatures are flying around his throne, continually praising God and shouting out about his glory. And they say, just like we sang a few moments ago, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. See, Isaiah sees these winged creatures that, that were probably the most fantastical, strange, and terrifying thing he had ever seen. And they're flying around the throne of God proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The entire world, not just the temple, the entire world is full of his glory and grandeur. That, that he cannot be contained. See, Isaiah is struck by God's grandeur, and it it forces a a shift in perspective for Isaiah. You you see, when Isaiah encounters God at the center of this throne, he, he is coming into contact with ultimate reality, and his perspective begins to shift because as big as the problems of his day are, as big as the circumstances in his life seem, he realizes that they are simply a mirage compared to the ultimate reality that God is seated on his throne, that he is holy, 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 and the entire world is full of his glory. And he suddenly recognizes that all of the concerns, all of the things that fill up his day today, that there's a shift that has to happen. 
Because suddenly he is realizing that he is not the center of his world. He is not the center of the cosmos. There is a God who is so grand, so majestic, so holy, so full of glory that the entire world can't contain him. It causes a shift in perspective where he has to realize that, 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 that there's something bigger going on than his day-to-day experience. See, when we encounter God's holiness, something within us has to shift. And the problem with saying that, that, that when we encounter God's holiness, is there's not really anything for us to compare God's holiness to. Because when we look at the world, when we look at our experience, we don't actually often encounter holiness. It's something that, that A.W. Tozer says that, that the word holiness for God is the word we use when all other words fail. When we have no other language to describe who God is and how utterly unique he is, we simply say he's holy. And these angelic beings are, are not only saying he's so utterly unique and holy, but they, they do a threefold repetition to essentially say he is infinitely unique and unlike any other thing. And it causes something to shift within Isaiah. And, and I, I think it's a little bit like what happens to us. If you've ever been out in, in some experience in nature where you just experience the grandeur of our world, maybe you're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and suddenly you look down and you just realize how incredibly small and insignificant you are or standing at the top of a 14er and looking out and you can see all the way into the the surrounding countryside and, and you see how big the world is and you just feel like an ant. And you feel like you are so, so tiny in the space, the world. See, the, the, the only thing we really have to compare God's holiness, his grandeur, his majesty to is, is when we are utterly overwhelmed and, and realize that something within us has to shift. One of my favorite stories of, of that kind of shift taking place is from uh, my wife's uh, uncle, whose name was Volker. And Volker was a German living in Texas, and he was just like a larger-than-life uh, character. And he was one of those people who could just like spin words in such a way. He had all these phrases and jokes and stories. He was a masterful storyteller, and he just had this way about him that made you feel at peace and seen and known. But one of my favorite stories about Volker is that uh, at one point he had two teenage daughters and, and one of his teenage daughters did what most teenagers do and, and kind of got to the point where she believed the world was revolving around her, right? Like we've all seen that like propensity in teenagers to just believe like everything is about me, it's about what I want and I desire. And, and one night when that attitude had gotten particularly heated in their home, Volker just kind of stopped the argument and took his daughter outside And he said, look at the stars. And they just sat in silence, which I'm sure had to feel jarring after the shouting and the disagreements that they had been having inside. And they just sat in silence, and he just had her look at the stars for a few moments. And then he broke the silence without even looking at her and saying, sweetheart, I love you. But the world does not revolve around you. So stop acting like it. (laughs) 
and, and she'll tell you that, that there was some sort of shift that happened in that moment as she was just looking out at the stars with her dad beside her. There, there was just this shift and this realization that, that something had to change, that that attitude of the world revolves around me and what I want and what I desire is not true. And there's something like that happening for Isaiah in this moment when he comes into the holy presence of the living God where he realizes that his perspective has to shift and change because he is encountering something that is completely beyond himself. And in fact, it, it brings him to his knees in a way because what he says after he sees God's presence and is ushered into this holy space is he, he responds by saying, Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, now you have to imagine for Isaiah, he, he knows the story of Uzziah trying to go into the presence of the King and being struck with leprosy. And that was not an uncommon thing. When, when people went into the Holy of Holies, when they entered into God's presence, there were all sorts of rituals and things that people had to do to make sure that when they encountered God's raw power and holiness, that they were cleansed so that they could encounter and experience God in that space. In fact, you've probably heard before, when the, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, they would tie a rope around his leg in case they had missed anything in the rituals to make sure he was cleansed so that they could pull him out if he died in God's presence. And suddenly Isaiah finds himself in that space, the hot spot of God's holiness, experiencing God's raw power and presence and majesty. It would be like if you or I walked into a nuclear reactor without any sort of protection or, or any sort of thing to, to keep us protected from the radiation and power. He is terrified in this moment. And so he says, I, I am ruined. I am lost. I am completely doomed and undone. And, and what you have to realize is, is him saying, I am ruined. It's not this sort of response where he's saying like, oh my gosh, God is going to strike me dead because he's so angry at me for being here. It's not this like self-loathing hatred. It's just this proper perspective and understanding that he is in the presence of a holy God and something within him needs to change or he will be annihilated. Not because God is not good, but because he is so holy and so good. It's like if you get too close to the sun and you are burned up and annihilated, it's not because the sun has any animosity towards you. It's just because it is so powerful and so holy that any sort of, of life that enters into that space will be consumed by it and destroyed. And that's the realization that Isaiah has in this moment. He is a person of unclean lips. He is unholy in the presence of holiness. And he has this realization that, that everything he has ever done for God, every worship song he's ever sung, every prayer that he's ever offered just pales in comparison to the worthiness of who this God is and what he deserves. And, and so he's struck with this sense that he's doomed and he's terrified. 
And again, it's, it's not this self-loathing or this self-hatred. It, it's similar to how if I stepped onto a basketball court with Jokola Nokic, right? One of the greatest basketball players in the world, just won the NBA championship. It, it, did I just say Jokola Nokic? <laughs> I did, didn't I? Nikola Jokic. Wow, that was weird. <laughs> and you're like, who is that? I've never even heard of that guy before. If I step onto the court with, oh my gosh, I almost did it again, Nikola Jokic, one of the greatest basketball players in the world, and I step onto the court with him, this guy has about a foot on me and 100 pounds, and he's one of the greatest basketball players in the world, and if I step onto the court with him and I say, man, I'm just about to be so destroyed, I'm about to be demolished by him, it's not me saying that like I'm some terrible person or there's something wrong with me, it's just recognizing how great of a basketball player here. That's kind of what Isaiah is doing in this moment. It's a proper recognition of who God is, but that leads to a space where he has to recognize that something within him needs to shift as well. That, that something within him needs to change. That as he enters into the holy space, he is overwhelmed with his lack of holiness and realizes that something cannot be the same. You see, when we encounter God, when we experience God, there's this realization within us that something's not right. And suddenly in this moment, Isaiah is confronted with all of the impurities, all of the imperfections, all of the ways that he has lived a life of unholiness all of the, the ways he's experienced the brokenness in this world by death and decay and disease, all of the ways he's contributed to the brokenness and unholiness in the world, through the ways that he's harmed others and harmed himself. He, he's suddenly confronted with every lie he ever told, uh, ever told, every thought he ever had, every action he ever took. He's overwhelmed with the reality that he is broken and he is a person of unclean lips and that something within him needs to change. But the beauty of this story, that the paradox of this story is that as we get this glimpse of God in his holiness and in his majesty and seated on his throne in the space that, that not even the whole world can contain his glory, and God has never felt more other and unlike and unique to us. God makes a way for Isaiah to be in his presence. God in his mercy and grace moves towards Isaiah. And his holiness does not consume him. His holiness transforms him and cleanses him. Listen to these words in Isaiah 6, 6. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth. Now, now there's an image, isn't it? I mean, have you ever grabbed a, a burning coal before or, or taken a, a log in a fire and accidentally touched it? I mean, you know the smell of burning and the pain, and, and this touches his lips this object of purity. And as it touches his mouth, the seraphim says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. 
and your sin has been atoned for. You see, here's the beauty of this passage. When Isaiah counters God, it not only shifts his perspective about ultimate reality, but, but it shifts his perspective and it gives him an understanding of who God is and who he is and what he needs to exist and be able to return to God's presence. And he thinks that that will result in him being destroyed and consumed. And in fact, God moves towards him and cleanses him. See, the holiness of God does not harm Isaiah. It heals him. And it makes him whole. And all of his sin and all of his guilt is taken away and atoned for. You see, God wants to be known and he wants to be close to his people. In many ways, that's the heart of the story of scripture. We were created for perfect relationship and intimacy with God and we lost it because we chose to walk away. And since that moment, God has not stopped pursuing and chasing after us to bring us home. And Isaiah experiences that in this moment. And what's unique about this story is this is the first time in Scripture that there's a new paradigm that unfolds in this story. Because up until this point, any time in Scripture where something that is impure or unholy touches and comes into contact with something that has been cleansed or pure, it transports and it transmits its unholiness onto that object. But here we see a reversal of that paradigm where God's holiness is so potent and so pure that it cleanses the impurity in Isaiah. And this actually begins to set up a theme that we're going to see throughout the, the book of Isaiah. It is that this paradigm shift, this, this new way that God is interacting with the world is, is part of the promise of Isaiah. And so then Isaiah, he, he's been purified, he's been changed, he's been transformed, and he hears God say, who will go for us? Who, who will pronounce my message to the people of Israel? And, and Isaiah, standing there, having been purified, having been cleansed, having been changed, he says, I will go. And then God says something very interesting that no preacher ever wants to hear. He says, you are going to go and you are going to preach, and no one's going to listen to you. Every preacher's worst nightmare. No one's going to care what you have to say. No one's going to engage. Their hearts will be hard. They are going to be unrepentant. Their eyes are blind to what I'm doing in the world, and their ears are closed off. They will not hear you. And it's this rhetorical device, this, this way of God saying, the, the people are so far from me right now in this moment that they, uh, they can't even think of turning to repent. And so you are going to preach and you are going to spread my news and you are going to tell the world of what I am doing and no one's going to care. Which leads Isaiah to ask a really natural question. And he says, how long do I have to do that for? Like, that sounds awful. <laughs> like, I just, just like, we're just going to keep going with that. But surely at some point, something will change. And surely at some point, someone will listen. Surely at some point, their eyes will be open and, and their ears will hear and their hearts will be softened. And God says, no. No. You see, you are going to preach that message until everything is burned away until everyone is taken into exile, 
you were going to continue to preach about judgment and hope. And despite your best efforts, it's going to lead to exile because the people are going to refuse to listen. And so you're going to preach that message until there's no one left to listen. Until there's no one left to hear. But there's this interesting language that God uses in the midst of this. When he talks about the, the devastation and the ruin that's going to happen to the people of Israel. Is it's throughout this, there's these verbs that he uses that, that mirror what's happened to Isaiah in the story. That, that through exile, all of the impurity and imperfection and the lack of holiness, the, the, the ways that the people of God have failed to live up to the standards and ideals of God, those impurities too will be burned away. That there's this glimmering hope of redemption, that in the exile, in God's judgment, is the refining fire of God's presence. That, that it's not God giving up on his people. It's the pain of Isaiah's lips being burnt by the coal that will bring the people of God back to himself. And then there's this interesting last line that, that as a, a forest has been just cut down, slashed and burned and everything, we, we know what forest fires look like in Colorado. He says, out of the, the, the chopping down of all of these trees, out of the, the pain of exile, there will remain hope because a stump will remain that will shoot up into new life. And that's the promise of Isaiah is that despite whatever judgment, despite whatever circumstances, despite whatever might be happening in our world, hope always, always remains. Because we believe in a God who does not give up on us, even when we are at our worst and even when we are farthest from him. And the beauty of the story of Isaiah is that we begin to see prophecies of what this stump will look like, what this, this shoot out of deadness will bring new life. And so we begin to see promises as we go through the book of what that person will look like and how it will be a person who, who brings the holiness and the presence of God to the people. And when he encounters people who are unclean and diseased and full of decay, his holiness is imparted to them and they are made clean. And we see stories of that person, that hope, that encounters people who have experienced death brought to newness of life. And we see people who have been spiritually asleep Awaken to the reality of who God is. Because you see, what happens in this story is we realize that God always makes a way for us to encounter and be in his presence. And ultimately, that promise of hope is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we close today on that note of hope, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of the chaos and uncertainty that might surround our life. I want to invite you into a space of prayer. And for the next few moments, we are just going to pray in this space to encounter God. And there's three things that I want us to pray for as a community and as individuals. 
Where are spaces in our life where we need to encounter God's presence? Where are places within us where we need to confess our imperfection and our impurity like Isaiah did so that we can be cleansed? And where do we need God to open our hearts to what he is doing in the world and within us? Would you take a moment now and spend some time in prayer? And whatever question stands out to you, you can spend some time with that. Follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I believe God wants to encounter us today. So I'm inviting you now to open yourself to that space as we close. Heavenly Father, God, I pray the, the beauty of this story, of the, the way that Isaiah is overwhelmed in the place of your presence, the way he encountered you and your holiness. God, I pray that for our people, not just today, but that we would be a people who long to experience and encounter you as ultimate reality. God, I pray for the places in our hearts and in our souls that are far from you, where we've walked away from you, where we, we think even, God, maybe that we are too far from you. God, I pray that the beauty of the story and the way that God comes to Isaiah and provides a way for him to be in his presence. God, I pray we would recognize that in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings purity and wholeness to our lives. God, if there are any of us who need to wake up and have our eyes and our ears opened and our hearts softened to the things of you, God, I pray that your spirit would move in this time to awaken us to who you are and what you would have us do in the world. And it's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen.